couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that I had been binge watching this TV program called Special Forces, which is about Special Forces. But the trick is that they invite uh, actors and athletes and influencers and all kinds of people, beauty queens, into this uh, modified training for special forces and it's pretty intense as you might guess but it's really interesting to watch and i would fail out all of the time so i appreciate everybody who does this but in addition to having to pass the test that the physical test the mental test that they put out for people um, every once in a while they'll call somebody in for kind of a psychological debrief um, either they're having issues that they think are, are affecting their performance or they've got an attitude that needs to be corrected or whatever. And so they bring them in, they sit before these two very intimidating special forces people and they always ask them one question. They ask a lot, but this question always gets asked. Why are you here in this intense situation? And the answer is always variation on a theme. It's always something like, because I think there's something more. I think I could be more. I think I could do more. I feel like I need to prove who I am. I mean, there's a lot of other brokenness that goes on, and we've talked a little bit about that before. But it's always something like, I sense I can do more. I sense I can be more. I sense I am more. I feel like there's more. And when I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, um, it seems to have hit a nerve. Because I've talked to a lot of people who were like, I'm not you know, at retirement age, which is the example that I gave. Um, I'm younger than that, but I realize, I look at what I'm doing in my life, I look at the past five years, 10 years, and I've kind of been coasting. And I realize that there's more to life. There's more that I can do. I feel like there's more. I feel like I settled or my priorities haven't been in the right order. And I think that's fairly universal. We have something built into us that says there's more out there. And I say fairly universal because I definitely know some people are like, no, I'm good. I have a happy, comfortable routine. I'm, I'm pretty much good. But I think a lot of us just have this sense that there's more out there that we could be a part of that's bigger, that we could give more or whatever. And recognizing this sense that we have something that's yearning for more is going to help us understand the story that we're going to look at this morning. So we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So let's fill in a couple of the gaps in the story. First of all, Herod. Maybe you're very familiar with Herod, maybe you've never heard of Herod before, so let me do a brief riff on Herod. Herod is sort of the client king in this part, in this part of the world. Uh, he's been set up by Rome, he's a good friend of Caesar Augustus, so they make him king of this area. And Herod knows that his people hate him, and he hates that they hate him. And he also knows that in addition to being hated by them, they don't view him as being a legitimate ruler. They think of him as being a usurper. And so Herod spends his entire kingship clinging to power in the most hideous way. He's a terrible person. He's a terrible ruler. Great builder, but he is a terrible person. He kills his favorite wife and he kills three of his sons, which led Caesar Augustus to say, it's better to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. There's a little wordplay in Latin there. But basically, Augustus knew that since Herod was a Jew, his pig was safe and his sons weren't. When Herod was on his deathbed, he knew that people would be overjoyed he was dying. And so he gave an order that all the leading citizens of the country were to be gathered up and held. And as soon as Herod was dead, they were supposed to be slaughtered so that there would be weeping in the country when Herod died. It, the order was never actually carried out, but that's the type of person Herod is. Herod is a bad dude. What about the Magi, the wise men, the three kings? They're basically astrologers. Now, astrology has a very negative connotation now, but really up until the high medieval period, people were doing astrology. And basically what it meant to them was they were looking for signs in the stars. They were looking for the way God was revealing himself. The, uh, the constellations, the movement of the stars all meant something. So these are people who spend their life looking into the heavens, trying to see what is going to happen. What does that portend? They're highly educated people. They probably come from a priestly class. They're probably pretty high up in government. And our word magic and magician, magician comes from the word magi. After that, we don't know a whole lot more about them. We infer that they're kings because of the extravagance of the gift, but they may or may not have been. We infer that there's three of them because there were three gifts. There might have been many, many more than that. There's not a whole lot we know about these people. So why are they in the story in the first place? Well, that's where it gets interesting. Because back in the 6th century BC, the Jewish people are carried off into the Babylonian captivity. They didn't take everybody, they basically took the cream of the crop. So all the educated people, the ruling class, everybody who had a skill or a talent, they go to Babylon and they settle in. And, you know, like seeks like, and so educated people hang out with educated people. And the people in Babylon and then Persia begin to learn the Jewish scriptures. And they hear a lot of the stories, particularly about prophecies, about what God is doing. And there was one prophecy out of uh, Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, that has particular meaning for them and for this passage. That passage says, a star shall come forth out of Jacob. And in the 6th century BC, that was being interpreted messianically by the rabbis. So the star meant that a king was going to come. Now, I think one of the most interesting parts about all of this comes out of the book of Daniel. 
because it says that King Nebuchadnezzar made Daniel, who, you know, Daniel in the lion's den, then same dude, that he made Daniel the chief of the magicians, the enchanters, the astrologers, and the diviners. So the chance of Daniel being the head of the Magi is actually pretty good. And Daniel certainly would have shared everything about the Jewish scriptures, everything about the leaning into the, into the Messiah with them. So that's what we know about the Magi, and that's the background. So since the time of Daniel, they've been looking for this star, which is going to point them in the direction of the coming king. So let me make a couple points about the Magi. They were looking for a sign from God. And I think that's a really interesting posture. They're actively looking for God at work in their lives and in their world. We talked about this last week. What are you looking for on a daily basis? Are you getting up in the morning and looking around during the day going, God, where are you at work? What are you calling me to be? What are you calling me to do? God, what do you have for me? Or are you just looking for what's going to be the easiest thing, what's going to make you most comfortable, what's going to make you happy? So they have this posture of looking for God. Now, sometimes when we look for God, we get a little nervous that we're going to miss it, the will of God. I'm not one of those people that believes that you can really miss the purpose of God by accident. It's not like the wise men went to bed early one Thursday and that was the night the star was there and so they missed out on it. I think sometimes we miss the will of God because we choose to miss it. And sometimes we choose to say no. But if your general posture is, God, you're at work. I want to be a part of that. I want to see what you're doing. You're not going to miss the working of God. Um, but posture is important. Frequently, people will say to me, how do you have so many stories that you're able to tell? And I'm always like, I don't have any more stories than you do. It's just that I'm always on the lookout for them. So I find the stories. And it's the same thing. They had a posture of looking for the star. And when it came, they were ready for it because they'd been actively looking. And it reminds me that God puts out all sorts of signs that point people to him, that point people to Jesus. And the people who are looking see them. Uh, Romans 1 is all about this. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seeing, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So the wise men, the Magi, are a great example of how there are signs of God at work all over the place, and the people that are looking for them find them. So why are they looking? I think it's because they recognized that there was something more. It had to start with Daniel and other people like him. They had something that the rest of the Magi lacked. They had a faith, they had a belief that was different, that made them different, but the whole book of Daniel is about that made them different from everybody else that produced results that other people's lives were not producing. And so 500 plus years later, they're still looking for this thing. And if they hadn't felt that there was something more, if they hadn't felt like that, that this star was going to bring something brand new that they'd been looking for, they would have allegorized it away. They would have said, eh, it's not really going to happen. The star is just a symbol of the light of God in all of us or something like that. But they were actively seeking the star because they recognized that there was something more. The star held the answer to a question. Is there more to life than this? And the star was the first good answer they'd come across. 
because it promised that what God was doing was going to fulfill the longing inside of them to help them figure out what the more was that they didn't have. Because they were rich, they were educated, they were comfortable, that everything anyone could ever possibly want, and they were still looking for something more. Like a lot of the people on the TV show I've been watching, they have all these things, but they're still looking for something else. My father-in-law used to say, I've been rich and I've been poor, and I like being rich better. There's nothing wrong with having money. There's nothing wrong with being educated. There's nothing wrong with having creature comforts. But those things won't fulfill the longing in your soul for something more and something deeper. They only create a desire for more. And they tend to distort reality and they can make you miss the blessings that you have in your life because they drive you to look for something else. It's like with the Special Forces people. There, there's just got to be something more than what I found in my life. And what they're looking for, what the Magi are looking for, is a connection with something deeper, with someone deeper. Maybe from the, at the very beginning with Daniel and the others, they saw a contentment and a joy that wasn't tied to the life circumstances. Maybe they saw hope that was an anchor in a chaotic time. Maybe they were looking for a king who would bring a kingdom of justice and righteousness and peace. They were looking for more. And they didn't give up easily. For a couple of hundred years, they have this expectation, and all of a sudden, they get the sign, this is it. And who knows what it was? Maybe it was a comet, maybe Jupiter and Saturn were in conjunction, or maybe it was just a miracle of God. I have no explanation. But for 500 years, they looked, and they believed, and they kept looking. And that's the rub sometimes for us. We get tired, or we get busy, or we forget, or we let something else take the place of God in our lives. Or sometimes we get disappointed or frustrated with people or circumstances and we let that get in the way of us following God. And then we begin to notice the fraying around the edges. Our patience with people grows thin. We can't find where we put our joy. Our hope turns to pessimism. Now, I am not a patient person by nature, but waiting just seems to be a part of life. And God's timing is always different reads slower than mine. So I want to offer something to you and it's one of my favorite psalms because it reminds me that sometimes we just have to wait but we have to wait in faith. And it's Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you Lord. Lord hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you Lord kept a record of sins Lord who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. I love the language of waiting, but waiting in hope. And it reminds me to keep on keeping on. But when they finally saw God at work, they acted. And when I wrote this title, I played with the word respond. When they saw God at work, they responded. But then I thought, respond could be, yep, there's God at work. But acting means that they did something. They already believed, they already had faith, and now they see what God is doing, and they have to do something, they have to act on it. 
And that's oftentimes where the rubber meets the road for us. We see God at work. We see an answer to prayer about what we need to do next and how do we respond. Well, the Magi responded in a couple very important ways. They let go of their treasure. Anything that you care about is ultimately going to cost you money. And you can always tell what you care about by what you spend your money on. And so the Magi offer their finances back to God as gifts. They bring the gift of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And those are all extremely expensive gifts. And it's easy to look at that and go, well, wouldn't a card have been fine? Congratulations, Mary and Joseph, sending positive energy your way. You know, or a pack of diapers. I mean, everybody needs diapers. It still says we care and they're on sale at Target. But the point of the gift is actually a question. How can we outgive God? God's gifts are extravagant to us. The gift of Jesus is extravagant. And so the, the wise men respond appropriately. They offer extravagance back to God. Now, it'd be really easy to dismiss this as gifts that rich people can afford to give. They're rich, they can give extravagant gifts, and they can, I can't. But there is another well-beloved part of the Christmas story. I'm talking about the little drummer boy. And you know some of the lines. I am a poor boy too. Pa -rum -pa -pum -pum. I have no gift to bring. Pa -rum -pa -pum -pum. Shall I play for you? Pa -rum -pa -pum -pum. Mary nodded. Now, we know that's fictional because anybody with a newborn doesn't want to drum anywhere near them. There was no little drummer boy at the manger. But I like the sentiment of being poor but still wanting to offer. And actually, right, I just have to do this little riff. That song wasn't written until 1941. It's pretty late as far as Christmas carols go. And it wasn't even recorded until 1951 by guess who? You'll never guess, so I'm gonna tell you. It was first recorded by the Von Trapp family singers. Yes, the Sound of Music people. There, hope you enjoyed that. So even though the little drummer boy makes our holiday playlist, maybe there's a different example of how different people bring different things as gifts. And I found the better story in Mark and Luke. And it happens later on in Jesus' life. And it says that Jesus is sitting at the temple and he's sitting by the place where people would come in and bring their offerings. And there was a lot of people who came in and they gave extravagant gifts. And there was one widow who came in who just dropped a couple very, very small coins in. And Jesus talks about the magnitude and the generosity of her giving. The important point of the gifts isn't that it was gold and frankincense and myrrh, that it was expensive. It was the realization by the widow, by the magi, by a lot of people that they can't outgive God. That he's given us such a great gift in Jesus that anything that we give back is ultimately going to pale in comparison. So how could they give less? So they give of their finances back. They let go of comfort and convenience. And this is something that I think we bump up against all the time. We will do a lot of things until we come upon the inconvenience factor. We are in until it's inconvenient. And then it causes us to pull back because we're not sure we want to do it anymore. So the Magi came from the East. They probably came from modern-day Iran. 
Persia at the time. So it's 900 miles away. They're probably traveling three, four, five months. And they're camping. Yeah, it was probably glamping, but still, they are not staying at the Hyatt or the Four Seasons. They are staying with camels and tents. They've got an entourage. Whenever Megan and I travel, we're always convinced we have forgotten something. And we generally say, it's okay, we're going to civilization. We'll be able to buy something. There was no civilization. So they had to, they had to bring everything with them on the road that they were going to need that long. That none of the comforts of their normal lives. And this might be the area of the greatest challenge for many of us. And it really goes back to the question of what you're looking for in life. It's inconvenient to be a part of a small group. You, you might want to stay at home and watch the game that night. You might be tired. You might want to just preserve your options in case something you'd rather do comes along. But you'll never grow in discipleship or in deep relationships with other people in your church family unless you get up off the couch and go. It's inconvenient to serve in whatever capacity. But serving is the quickest way to change your life and your attitude and to see Jesus among us. It's inconvenient to give. We're going to raise money on Christmas Eve for two really great projects that will change people's lives. And the amount of money that we want to raise is nothing compared to the resources we have. But if we give, it means we have less money to spend on what we want. Now, on the other hand, in the last couple of weeks, I got to play Santa a couple of times because as we always do, we collect gifts for kids in the school system who wouldn't have any Christmas presents if you people did not provide for them. And so a lot of people brought gifts and either brought them here and I took them home to Megan or I stopped by and picked them up from people who couldn't get them here. And people went out and they bought gifts and they wrapped them and they went to a lot of inconvenience and every single person, I would betcha, already believes that the inconvenience was worth it to knowing that they have changed the life of one kid on Christmas morning. The inconvenience of buying and giving gifts was worth it. Finding Jesus was worth the inconvenience that the wise men undertook. They recognized the real king. There were kings where they came from, and they walked into a situation with rival kings. Caesar had made Herod king, God had made Jesus king. And they had to figure out whose authority they were going to accept, Herod's authority or God's authority. They had to figure out which kingdom was going to be more important to them. And I think they realized pretty quickly on, and then later had a dream about it, that Herod was basically playing the same old political game, win at any cost. And it, they didn't play that game. They knew that God was doing something different, so they avoided Herod and went home another way. And then they responded with worship. In fact, the Magi are the first people who worship Jesus. Now, sometimes we think of worship as singing, and that's just not everybody's deal. But worship is really about what you give yourself to. Whatever you're giving yourself fully to, that's what you worship. And they gave themselves fully to God. There were so many things that the wise men could have worshipped. There's so many things that we can worship. The trick is the wise men worshiped the right thing. They worshiped the right person. And I don't know that anything in the wise men's life situation changed. They didn't suddenly became poor because, become poor because they offered their finances to Jesus. 
They didn't suddenly lose influence. They didn't suddenly lose power. They still had to travel four months to get home. That's not nothing. But really nothing changed in their life situation except their posture and what they had chosen to worship. And because they decided to worship God, worship Jesus, instead of any of the other things they might have been tempted to, they were filled in a way that they hadn't been filled before. And they were changed in a way that they hadn't been changed before. So Christmas, these stories, they give us an opportunity to take a few minutes and evaluate what we're seeking and what we're worshiping and where our priorities are and what trajectory we're headed on. I mean, look ahead, cast forward six months or six years and look at your trajectory. Are you headed where you want to be? Is that where God is calling you to be? We have some really good friends who live very, very different lives than we do. They're serious Christian people. And I think that the guy is, um, has real talent in men's ministry. I mean, he cares deeply about pouring into guys' lives, about mentoring and developing them. He's done very well for himself in business and really felt called by God to accept a men's ministry uh, position at their church. And he went through, because he's a planner, he went through and he, he came up with all sorts of things, programs and ways to invest in guys' lives. And I don't see him very often, and so I talked to him after a while. I'm like, hey, did it work out with the church? And he said to me, the job would have been great. We were able to come to an agreement on what I was going to do. I was super excited about it, but we just couldn't make the money work. And I sort of laughed because I thought, of course you couldn't make the money work. There's no way that you're going to make working for a nonprofit what you have made at your level in business. But that's not the question. The question was, is this what God is calling you to do? And this might come across as a little bit of a little bit judgy, but I think I know the situation well enough. I think ultimately he went, okay, God, here's my list of needs, and here's my list of wants, here's my lifestyle choices, and if you can make that work, I'm all in. And there's no way he was going to be able to maintain his same lifestyle. And so he said no, because he couldn't make the money work. And will God still use him? Of course God will, because he wants to be available for that. But he'll never experience the fullness of what God was calling him to in that moment. I don't want to say he isn't worshiping God fully. I'm not saying it was even the right calling. I'm just saying that we tend to operate from one out of one or two places. A mentality of scarcity. We'll never have enough to satisfy our wants and our needs. We have to protect our stuff. Or, God, thanks for what I've got. I trust you with what I've got and with my future, and I'm ready to follow. And that's the example of the Magi. So let me ask you three questions. The Magi are looking for a king. What are you looking for? What would you say that you worship? And number three, what keeps you from responding like the Magi? Hi, thanks for watching. The people of Harbor Covenant Church really want you to know the love that God has for you, want to grow with you in faith, and want to serve alongside you, not only to help others do the same, but also to make our families and our communities better. 
If that sounds like something that you can get on board with, then like, follow, and drop us a comment in the video. Watch some more videos on our channel or come visit us on Sunday. You can find out more about Harbor Covenant Church at harborcove.church.